Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week is, as always, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson, the man to see for all your commercial litigation needs. Our top story for this week is, on Thursday, Representative Kevin McCarthy of California, who's the current House Majority Leader, shocked pretty much everyone in the media by withdrawing his name from contention in the race to succeed House Speaker John Boehner uh, in what was expected to be pretty much a a pro forma vote to uh, select him as the nominee. So what's going on here with your Republicans in the House, Jay? Well, I don't know. Uh, And, you know, I'll tell you, first of all, I guess I'd step back and say that, you know, the media loves these Republican uh, Civil War sort of uh, stories. Uh, that, you know, there's, there's always this battle going on for the heart and soul of the Republican Party, and it's the party is in disarray and so forth. Um, and I think we can we can touch on a couple reasons for why there tends to be more of these inter-party fightings and, and, two, why there tends to be more coverage of them. Um, but to me, a lot of times on, on something like this, on a speakership, and uh, I've been through these not at the federal level but at the state level. I was, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a participant on – unwilling uh, participant dragged into uh, some of these leadership fights. Um, a lot of it, you know, isn't ideological. A lot of it isn't, uh, uh, you know, there's any particular principle other than uh, one guy wants to be in charge more than the other. Uh, and it's it's a whole lot of things about promises made uh, to various individual uh, people uh, in terms of, you know, committee assignments, chairmanships, so forth. And and personal loyalties and all that. So sometimes I think it's hard hard to read some sort of big, big picture, big story into these sort of fights that are in many many times just you know personal. Um, well, see, to me in this case, I think it it is pretty clearly a, a sign of there being two very distinct Republican parties, at least in in, in Congress, at least especially in the House and. Uh, the way I see this story is the uh, House Freedom Caucus, which is the bunch of what I would call uh, right-wing nutjobs in the House, uh, more so than the normal House members, kind of fighting against the establishment. And that Freedom Caucus, I don't know, around 30 to 40 members, I think. Uh, from what I've heard, they actually threatened to uh, reveal what may or may not be an affair between uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is married, and uh, – a representative from North Carolina, Renee Elmers, who also is married. And uh, uh, based on that, McCarthy decided to withdraw, hoping to keep this from going public, which clearly it did not work. Well, you, you screwed that up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, I, you know, first, I guess the, I would say, uh, it's, it's always a weird thing when uh, uh, something like that would have currency in a Republican fight, but I, I don't think it would have the same effect on the other side. Um, there's always been a tension, and I guess maybe the best way to express it is between you know the establishment with capital letters and sort of the other guys. The same um, people versus the nuts. No, I wouldn't even say I, I wouldn't even say it's the nuts. I, I mean maybe um, uh, because I, th- I suppose there are probably some nuts in the establishment too. Um, but it, it, 
to me, it's often it's it's less uh, ideological and almost more cultural. Uh, you know. So how I mean, about how about the compromisers versus the hostage takers? Wow, I told you, man, it's early this morning. I'm. Um, uh, I think that yeah, the compromisers. I guess that's probably a fair fair category because that's sort of the 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 criticism that's typically leveled at the uh, Republican establishment. Um, but this has this isn't anything new. This has been sort of a uh, this fight was going on in you know 1976. Uh, well, I mean, I guess before that it went on in, in you know 1964 um, uh, with the uh, Goldwater uh, candidacy and, and uh, that challenge. Um, so so this is something that's kind of enduring in Republican politics. And I don't, I don't think you see the same thing on the, the Democratic side. Maybe it's just a, a difference of the way that, you know, the different coalitions that, that form the parties. Um, yeah, I, I think said, I still think a lot of this comes down to uh, personality, uh, personal ambition. Uh, and, and look, maybe a lot of people just didn't think McCarthy was the guy for one reason or another. Um, and, and if it's if it's this uh, this affair alleged affair, um, look better that come out now uh, in the uh, caucus room <laughs> than than come out in the paper after he's been named speaker. Well, uh, you know I... those those are there. I, I could say there's a there's also could be a very practical concern about electing someone uh, to the speakership position that would have that kind of vulnerability. Well, yeah, and I think part of the problem is that. Uh, no reasonable person these days really wants the job of speaker. It wasn't that long ago where the speaker was a, an immensely powerful person and you went against the speaker, you went against the leadership at your own peril. But these days, especially in the last, though, really five or six years, the last couple election cycle, that, that's really changed uh, in part because of changes in campaign finance, in part because of the rise of the Tea Party and members realize that they don't have to kowtow to the leadership. And they're, they seem to be a lot more interested in uh, uh, whipping up their conservative base, threatening primary challenges for other folks. And essentially, they've, they've, uh, this, this radical right in Congress has achieved a lot more power than in the past. So I agree with you that there have always been perhaps these tensions. But I think the new environment that allows these people on the fringes to tap into an independent source of support makes them a lot more powerful and makes it so much harder to lead the House than it used to be in the past. And it's a it's a difficult job, and I now I know the House establishment is hoping that Paul Ryan will take it on, and he said, initially he said, uh, basically no way in hell, but now apparently he's going to be considering it over, over the weekend, and they're hoping to, to talk him into it as sort of their last best hope of getting someone there who might be able to do something or other. Oh, these these people. These people. Oh. Uh. Uh, no, you know something. This is, um, uh, I, I think, this is much less of a crisis again than than what you're making and what the media is making it. Um, I, I would say it's perfectly natural for a lot of people who are seeking the speakership to say that they're not seeking the speakership. Um, yeah, that's that's really sort of the you know one of the best ways ways to to go about it uh, is uh, you know to be to be uh, you know unwillingly dragged in to serve and so forth. Um, so I, 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 you know, I, I plenty of people still want to be the speaker. Uh, is there an, an issue? I think the the sometimes caucuses can be the victim of their own success. That's a good point. Yeah, 
And I think that's something that's happened to the House Republicans because they have so many uh, seats that they've they've won. Uh, and we can talk about reasons for that. Uh, some has to have to do with districting and so forth. Uh, some just have to do with, with sheer number and population shifts and all that. But uh, it, it's a whole lot easier to govern a, a small majority than it is to govern a uh, significant majority. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And I think you and I, and are both nobody ever really, ever really talks about this kind of stuff on any of the shows or any of the newspapers, but I can tell you that that is a very real, real thing. Yeah, and, and uh, both you, know, you and I are house, say both, I both you and I are old enough to remember back in the eighties and the nineties when the Democrats had a much larger majority that the the radical left folks seem to have more of a voice than perhaps they do now because there is a smaller there are a smaller number of Democrats and they sort of had they're forced to be more united. Exactly, and and there were there were always the um, the, the folks that. Uh, can take a walk, you know. That's that's the uh, the the situation that uh, right. you've got there. But yeah, if you've got, um, you know, and again, I'll use the numbers uh, from you know the Ohio House when I served. At, at one point, there was a uh, uh, I wasn't elected; I was an aide, just to make make that clear. But no, there was a we had a fifty three member uh, majority. You need fifty, and and I'll tell you the fifty three was a whole lot easier to govern than. When we had a majority of uh, sixty, sure, and sixty-one, so uh, I think that's something that this is this is maybe a factor of the numbers, um, and and it's a factor of uh, any kind of politics. People are going to fight over who's in charge, over who has the big office, and so forth. Um, is it? Are we entirely in disarray, and so forth? Uh, I'd say no. Um, Again, it's it's a leadership vote. They've set a date for a leadership vote, and they will, and they will elect a speaker, and they'll proceed. And um, and I think you know to to your point that it's less of a crisis than the media is making it out to be. John Boehner's already said that essentially he will stay in his current position until a new leader is selected. And there are some big things coming up. And there's going to have to be a vote on uh, perhaps raising the debt ceiling. Then in December, there has to be a vote on that continuing resolution, budget resolution to to make sure the government doesn't shut down. Those are big things that are going to happen, but there will be a speaker in place, whether it's John Boehner or someone else. Yeah. Yeah. So chill out. And look, it's, it's a, uh elections are necessarily competitive and there's always there are always factions in any sort of uh you know look if if you're in a in a college fraternity or sorority uh if you're in the local uh PTA uh, I mean there're going to be these like you know factions that arise and our guys versus their guys and it it's it's part of uh it's just part of how people operate in, in any kind of group environment so sure. And I, I think that that's a very important point that sometimes is sometimes is overlooked. And the only thing I would add to that is, though, given recent changes in how elections work and how campaign finance work, that minority group is more powerful than they used to be in the past. And so it just makes the job of the speaker that much more difficult. Agreed. No, I, I agree with that. I would, and I would add to that. The other is is technology and twenty four seven news cycle yeah, makes things absolutely. a little bit different because I would say it used to be if you were you could be sort of have a uh, minority sort of uh, uh, backbencher type uh, uh, person and say all kinds of crazy stuff to your home folks in your district and everybody was happy with it. Uh, now you've got a situation where anybody can have sort of a national platform instantly, uh, 
uh, and that makes it more difficult for for leadership. Definitely. Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, I'm sure you heard on Monday, after really years of negotiations, the United States, Japan, and 10 other Pacific Rim countries reached a final agreement on what's called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a pretty ambitious trade deal that actually brings together countries that are uh, responsible for around 40% of the global economy. Uh, so it is a, a, a very important thing, a big deal. And uh, how do you feel about this, Jay? Well, you know my position generally is uh, trade, I'm for it. Free trade, I'm, I'm even more for it. Um, you know, the details of this have not been released, uh, and I... And they won't be for a that, while, yeah. And, or maybe if they had, I, I wouldn't have gotten around to reading them yet anyway. But, um, I, you know, I, I look, I, I think the, that's, that is sort of a fundamental uh, Republican, um, going back to Adam Smith type uh, thing, that, the, you know, the, the fewer barriers we erect uh, between countries for trading... Uh, the better it is in the long term for all those countries. Yeah, so, and we're, both, we're talking both, about both economically, both po- economically, politi- politically, and from a security standpoint. Yeah, and we're talking about a lot fewer barriers, according to the U.S. Trade Representative. Eventually, this deal would end more than eighteen thousand tariffs that are on American exports. So that's right. that's a lot of tariffs. But and the, the very idea that there are eighteen thousand tariffs out there—I mean, that that should tell you. Uh, tariffs are a big deal. A lot, there's yeah, a lot of them, yeah, yeah clearly. And one uh, one thing to point out, though, is that this deal will not go into effect until Congress approves it. Now, earlier in the year, Congress did approve what's called fast-track authority for President Obama, which means that they essentially have to give an up-or-down vote to this Trans-Pacific Partnership with no filibusters, no amendments, anything like that, though uh, there are some on the right who are not necessarily all that supportive of this tariff and or of this agreement for a couple of reasons, the two big reasons. Number one, it bars tobacco companies from using the uh, uh, trade, the trade process, the uh, not negotiation process, but the uh, the process of determining whether or not there have been violations of the agreement. So, to, yeah, so this is also like the international arbitration thank you. provisions, There's the word. provisions, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it bars dumping stuff. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, it, it bars it them from using that to block anti-smoking initiatives in other countries, and it also uh, doesn't give the drug companies everything they wanted in terms of patent protection for what are called biologics, which are uh, medicines made from living organisms. Right. Well, I'd heard that, yes, uh, Hillary Clinton was was upset, and this is probably the, where we're going with this, uh, that she thought the the uh, uh, agreement was too favorable to American pharmaceutical companies. Well, well, essentially what Hillary, yeah, Hillary Clinton's position on this is interesting because uh, as Secretary of State, on a number of time, a number of occasions, she she uh, was a very strong supporter of this agreement. In fact, CNN put together a little article with uh, documenting 45 times that she spoke out in favor of it. Right. And, 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 and again, you, you, you'd think as Secretary of State, foreign trade is something that you're a little bit involved in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so she clearly was a big supporter. Now, she had two objections, according, well, this week she came out with two objections. She said, number one, it doesn't have anything dealing with currency manipulation. And number two, it favors drug companies over patients. Now, these are two completely bogus objections, at least coming from Hillary Clinton, and here's why. The first thing, currency manipulation, this was never going to be part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It never was when she was involved. And so 
that that's it was completely off the table wasn't going to be it's, it's sort of like saying and it doesn't have it doesn't really address the uh, designated hitter rule yeah exactly I mean, sort of yeah, yeah, right right so now the second thing though favoring drug companies that gets into that patent protection thing what the US wanted was 12 years of patent protection for all these countries to agree to 12 years of patent protection for these biologics. Uh, other countries wanted more like three to five years. And there was actually a compromise that was reached, I believe like five to seven or something like that. So we actually came out of this with a better compromise than we thought we were going to get. And so well, essentially exactly. – that, And that's, that's what sort of, again, I find sort of mind-boggling is the, the Secretary of State, a former Secretary of State, who is, you know, essentially in charge of negotiating this. Uh, at the time, she was Secretary of State, is now complaining that it's too favorable to the United States. Yeah, cause, because essentially we're getting a slightly better agreement than we thought we would get when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. And so yes. she's – well, clearly the reason she's doing this is Bernie Sanders and threats from her left because the left is not happy about this at all. Traditionally, free trade has been something that's been kind of an ideological divide with the left not being as big of a fan because of – well, unions is, is a big part of it and uh, the right being far bigger fans of this sort of thing. And, and certainly uh, labor unions and auto workers come out against this uh, even though – some of these provisions take a long time to kick in, and part of the agreement between the U.S. and Japan, some of the barriers, that the tariff barriers that, that are against uh, Japanese vehicles in this country, they won't come down fully for like 25 to 30 years. Yeah. That's a long time, obviously. So, yeah, Hillary Clinton is doing you – know, and the thing about Hillary Clinton that bugs me, one of the many things that bug me is – uh, supposedly she cares about being authentic. I don't really believe that. But if she really cared about the authenticity or the trustworthiness issue, I think she could have actually used this as a way to demonstrate that, you know, saying I'm sticking to my guns. I'm not bowing to political expediency just because there are a few people on my left who, you know, but no, instead she just, she's essentially playing not to lose. And maybe that's the smart thing. I mean, she's still well ahead of Bernie Sanders, certainly in the Democratic primary. It's not really that big of a deal. I don't – big of a threat. But it's the kind of things when – when you see it in sports, you see a team playing not to lose. It's just it – just, it's somehow offensive, you know? It's not – Oh, no, it is. It, you know, it, well, I guess what's, what, what troubles me is uh, – and I get maybe she, if she's concerned about a challenge from her left. But, you know, uh, but I don't see but, – But if you consider what the challenge would be for her eventually – that Trump is riding high on this, uh, I'm not going to have any bad trade deals. And and her complaint is, this deal isn't bad enough. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Sort of, it's too favorable for and, the United States. And the thing is, I don't even see what it gains her because it's not like the people on the left are going to believe she's honestly changed her position. I mean, it's so transparently a, a political yeah. flip-flop and not anything having to do with principle, which gets to my fundamental problem with Hillary Clinton is I don't really think that she necessarily has that many principles aside from I think I should be president, be just like charge. my husband was. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> For your own good, you know. So she just, God, Hillary Clinton just presses so many of my buttons, I got to say. So uh, even though probably in terms of policy, I will – be more I will be closer to her in terms of policy positions than whoever the Republican nominee is. It's still going to be awfully difficult for me to cast a vote in favor of her, I think, when the time comes. 
that's that's good to hear. That's good. That means I'm I'm doing my job. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's that, but certainly it certainly doesn't hurt. So, um, okay. Uh, why don't we move on and talk about uh, missile strikes? We haven't talked about right. missile strikes in a while. It's been kind of been in the news a little bit. Uh, uh, last week, uh, just slightly slightly before our our show was up last week, uh, there was a big story about uh, a Doctors Without Borders hospital in Afghanistan was targeted by a U.S. airstrike from an AC-130 gunship, and there were 12 staffers and 10 patients that were killed as a result of this. And then this week, uh, first the American commander there, General John Campbell, uh, tried to sort of deflect a little bit of the responsibility at first, saying that, well, the Afghan forces requested this strike. Then on Wednesday, President Obama uh, uh, apologized to Doctors Without Borders for actually, you know, the missile strike, which clearly was launched by uh, U.S. forces and so forth. So that's kind of where we are now. It's pretty clearly, mistakes were made, as right. uh, people like to say in, in the political terminology. So uh, do you think that President Obama was right to apologize for this? Oh, I, I gosh, right to, yeah, I, I would imagine so, yeah. Uh, I think James Taranto in the Wall Street Journal pointed out this, the the sort of hilarity of the whole thing. <clears throat> I shouldn't say hilarity, I mean people getting bombed and killed, but it's the, the uh, 2009 uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner apologizing to the, I believe, 1999 Nobel Peace Prize winner for bombing them. Yes. Which is um, something you wouldn't expect to see. Yeah, I, the, the, re- the 1999 Peace Prize winner then also being sort of still miffed, uh, and I guess rightfully so, about the bombing, uh, but then not accepting the apology. Yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. Well, I, I think they want more than an apology, and they're not. Uh, Doctors Without Borders has indicated that even though there are three investigations being conducted, I think two by the United States and one by NATO, they want to see a truly independent uh, investigation. In fact, they want an invest. They want to do something new and exciting in terms of investigations. I don't know if you've heard about this, but they're looking for this uh, uh, international uh, investigation that agency that has never been used before, but apparently is part of uh, the UN, some sort of uh, some sort of UN agreement, and uh, right. that the U.S. actually hasn't signed on to to investigate okay. this. And I can understand. I can understand their reluctance to think that uh, U.S.-led investigations might not necessarily be as impartial as an international investigation. So I kind of get that. But uh, yeah. I, I, think, I think pretty clearly one, one of the things that this points out, regardless of what exactly happened, is that missile strikes or airstrikes are not the sort of surgical things that I think modern media and movies and TV have led us to believe that they often are, and that's especially the case when you have a situation where there's not necessarily great coordination, where you don't have U.S. Uh, reliable forward air controllers on the ground to kind of be saying, um, hey guys, this well, is a hospital. I would say, I mean, I, I don't want to, I think we can say that the missile strikes themselves are, are quite accurate, are quite uh, on point, and that the missiles go where they're they're supposed to Good go. Good point, yeah. The, but the, the point is, if you don't have the the uh, uh, proper intel uh, and and so forth. As you said, the, the forward people saying, this is the place you want to bomb. If you're being told to bomb the wrong place, yeah, uh, that's the problem. Uh, it's not a, it's not a technology problem. It's not a, a bad aim problem. Right. It's a uh, bad, bad information problem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, and we've certainly, we've conducted an awful lot of, uh, an awful lot of airstrikes, 
man, and as long as you do have those people on the ground, they do tend to be, you know, they do tend to be pretty accurate, though you can have issues where you have a case where, according to the Afghan forces, these insurgents were right around the hospital. Doctors Without Borders disputes that, and you would think Doctors Without Borders would be the people who would know since they were actually there in the hospital, you know, so. But uh, it is is a truly unfortunate, go ahead. But in comparison to the Russian situation, which also recently happened, where the uh, Russian strikes, uh, sea-based strikes aimed at Syria, fell short and landed in Iran. Um, and I think you would expect that, that that was more of a technological or bad aim failure. Could have been, As yeah. opposed to an intelligence failure. Uh, yeah, I think but- I think those two stories are kind of linked in that sense. Of course, uh, another big story this week is that Russia and Syria got together, and on Wednesday they launched a big coordinated assault. Russia fired 26 cruise missiles at targets in Syria, all the way from the Caspian Sea, which is around 900 miles away. So that's a pretty good, a pretty good uh, distance away. And um, and some of those, I believe, some of those fell short. We've also been pretty active in terms of at least the airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. Uh, something like I think uh, over seven thousand of them. Yeah. So, uh, the, but again, the airstrikes only going to be as good as the people on the people on the ground. Yep. So, uh, and that that I think that thing with Syria is kind of it's kind of interesting. Is the U.S. seems to think that, and I don't necessarily disagree that. Uh, there's not a whole heck of a lot we can do without having more people on the ground. And so if Russia wants to go in there and get stuck in a quagmire, have at it. Essentially, it seems like the Obama administration is kind of washing its hands, knowing that it doesn't really have many good options and just saying if Russia wants to destroy itself in this in this big mess of Syria, go right ahead. Because pretty clearly, we've been a colossal failure in Syria. So let them be a failure, too. Yeah, and I'll look at, I mean, I, I get that's maybe that's the position we have to take. And I think it was, oh gosh, was that, was that the folks at Vox who were making that idea or that argument that, uh, well, as far as Syria and the Russians go, now now Obama's got them uh, right where he wants them. Well, yeah, that's um, kind of ridiculous. Sure, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I think it's maybe sort of wishful thinking. Uh, I mean, that would be sort of like saying, like, uh, uh, you know, look, the Russian uh, invasion of Afghanistan turned out yeah. to be a failure. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think anyone still could have said in you know in 1979, oh man, we got those Russians right. where we want them now, um, you know. And I, I I would imagine I doubt the Ukrainians are thinking that either. Um, well, I think, and I think that people the, don't. The time will tell. I mean, no, yeah. it, it's going to be difficult, but we have to balance the fact that look, uh, yeah, they're going to have more problems, but you know what? We have a whole lot less influence in that area than uh, than we did just a few years ago now. Yeah. I think people don't really recognize, or many people don't recognize, what a what a colossal tragedy this really is. I mean, this war, this the civil war in Syria has been going on for four years now, and not only have around a quarter of a million people been killed, but half of the country has been displaced. That's that's astonishing. I mean, that's 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 hugely that that that's horrific. And the Obama uh, strategy, for lack of a better word, and I hesitate to use that word, has essentially revolved around trying to arm, uh, trying to arm moderate rebels. And right there, I think <laughs> that sort of tells you why this has been such a failure. Good luck finding moderate rebels. You know, and so, well, exactly, and, and yeah, and I think that's that's something that realistically we have to deal with. That the 
the only moderate rebels you, you really find are typically in Star Wars movies. Yes. Um, uh, lots of other times they tend to be sort of bad, bad characters. Um, but I think let's, let's also be clear that to some of these, these rebel groups, if you're a rebel in Syria and um, you've got two guys offering to help, uh, one is Obama, one is Putin, and you're thinking, all right, who, who's going to go the distance for me? Right. Um, you know, I, th- I think that 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 question is, is a pretty clear answer to it, and that's and that's the problem we got. Yeah. Speaking of going the distance, so while while Russia has mentioned said that they will not, by by Russia, of course, I mean Putin uh, has said that they will not be involving. Uh, Russian ground forces, they will, however, allow volunteer ground for ground forces to go in. <laughs> and I think, yes, I wonder how what that process of calling for volunteers would be exactly in Putin's Russia. So uh, I think, in, uh, you know, clearly Russia is upping its, upping its involvement in a real way. And in the very near future, we should expect to see, uh, I think, a not inconsiderable number of Russian ground troops in there, uh, whatever you want to call them, volunteers or something like that. And, yeah, you're right. If you're, if you're a rebel, moderate or otherwise, you definitely feel that you're getting a lot more support from uh, uh, you're getting a lot more support from uh, f- from Putin than you are from Obama, certainly. Right. Okay. Um, we're running a little short on time, but there was one other story that I think caught uh, the attention of both of us this week. You know, I don't think we've talked uh, before on the podcast about uh, debate contests. Oddly enough, maybe not oddly enough, it's not something that probably comes up. But th- this, I think, was was sort of unique, and I'm sure you've, you're familiar with this story, right, Jay? I think, in fact, you're the one who mentioned it to me. Um, I don't know. I, I don't, you know, I'll tell you, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm off my game this morning. So, so remind me. This is the bait. It was the bait contest between. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Yes. Okay. You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, Rikers Island, uh, inmates versus the, uh, Harvard debate team. Which on the face of it sounds like the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington Generals. Right. And so, but in a twist. It wasn't exactly that at all. In fact, the the Harvard debate team, which has won, I believe, three of the last four national yeah. debate contests, actually lost to this group of inmates. And and you know, again, it's it's a little fuzzy because as we've we talked uh, before the show, we're not sure exactly what the rules were, how it was judged, uh, and so forth. Uh, my my initial thought was I could see how a whole bunch of inmates might be more persuasive than a bunch of uh, nerdy, wimpy, rich kids. Yeah, I'm, 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 particularly, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing in my mind that kind of that stare that they perfected in the yard or something like that. You know? <laughs> exactly, yeah, so exactly. Some judge intimidation going on here. But uh, assuming that's not the case, it's still pretty impressive because from what I understand that the inmates weren't allowed access to the internet for 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 debate prep, they had to request debate materials in advance that would sometimes take uh, a week or more to get to them. Uh, as opposed to these, Har- maybe these Harvard kids just thought that this would be an easy go. That could be. Maybe uh, uh, maybe the inmates brought shifts. I, I, don't, I don't know. I I just I think it's a funny story. And I mean, I I think actually the more interesting story, which which hasn't been told, is is how did this end up happening? Um, that is that is because I think that point. is something that that. You know, is interesting. Well, you know, but uh, and and quite honestly, I, this is you know we we don't talk about this much, and I'm you know painted typically as a tough on crime, lock them all up, uh, throw uh, away the key, throw throw away the key, and give them the chair. Um, a type type uh, conservative, but 
prison reform and uh, how prisoners are, are rehabilitated is actually a really big issue to me, and I think it ought to be a big issue to a lot of people. Um, and and I think if if uh, you've got these guys who are learning this these kind of debate skills uh, and and thinking skills and argumentative skills, uh, I think that's I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so it, it, it always warms my heart to see an Ivy League institution losing out in any way, essentially. And right. I don't know if that's if that's my uh, small liberal uh, Midwestern liberal arts school bias at, at work there. I don't know. Some reverse snobbery. Who knows? But uh, to, to, to know that Harvard went down to inglorious defeat just makes me smile. I got to say. Yep. So. Yep. All me right. Too. All right. Well, and that's it for this week's episode. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute or two and rate the show, write a quick review. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.